What a tremendous Savior we have. Thank you so much to everyone who participated in the music this morning, including all of you. We praise the Lord for our opportunity to gather together around his word today. I just want you to take the outline that you have there before you and just briefly uh, let's set the environment here. We're picking up from last week's message. And we found that in the book of Hebrews, the author is writing a mixed multitude of believing, primarily believing Jews and unbelieving Jews mixed in as well, and maybe some others. There's a lesson there for all of us. But Jews who had truly received Christ as Savior were drifting back into Judaism because of the beauty and pageantry and tradition and history of their Jewish faith and because of the persecution that came upon them when they entered into Christianity. You remember in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was promised land and security and peace. But in the New Testament, the Lord says to us, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall have a farm and a home and a wonderful place to live. No, he says, shall suffer persecution on this earth. Store up your treasures in heaven. That's a pretty shocking message for people coming into the Christian faith. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage them and teach them and help them to understand that what we have in Christ is far superior to what they had in their Old Testament law system. And we come to this section here, beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, and going through 5, verse 10, that the high priest is being considered. And chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, are the qualifications of the high priest, and then verses 5 through 10 are how Jesus Christ fulfilled not only those qualifications, but far exceeded those qualifications in his person and who he was. The interesting thing here, the way it's designed is that we don't have a direct correspondence. In other words, the first verse of chapter 5 and the uh, fifth verse begins the explanation of Christ. They don't like, you got to do a little homework here. You got to get into verses 5 through 10 and kind of say, well, where, how does this fit together with 1 through 4? And that's what we're going to do as we go through these qualifications and how Christ far exceeded the qualifications of the high priest. As we do that, let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's blessing and strength. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to preach your word. I thank you this morning for raising me up and giving me strength and health to preach. I pray, Father, that you would sustain me. I pray, Father, that you would help us all to look to you and your dear spirit would convict us, would encourage us, would work in our hearts in the individual work you're doing in each life here today, Lord. Each life, every person is so significant in your plan and has a part to, to play, to work out through the leadership of Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of the Father, and the leading and powering of the Holy Spirit. So help this message to point us to Christ, to teach us through your word what you have for us and how we should behave ourselves and live in this world and this life. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you take your outline and turn to page two, you will find on page two the uh, point at which we're at, we're starting. You look down the page a little bit, it says, by being an intercessor who was a God-man. That's where we're at in our outline. And so, as we continue to look on, we are, are, we're seeing that uh, these different qualifications are all met by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But he's really more than that. He is one who is not only the high priest, but he is the intercessor. He is the high priest who is the God-man. No high priest of the Old Testament could ever claim any such thing or he would be apostate. But now we have a high priest who not only is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but who is indeed God and man. That leaves us with a tremendous blessing and opportunity. Having in the seat of authority, making intercession for us, one who is our brother, one who walked on this earth and experienced what we experienced, who faced the trials and the temptations and the problems that we faced and dealt with them successfully. And then having seen the debauchery of our sin, the, the heinousness of our lifestyles as we lived without God, in spite of that, while we were yet sinners in that sense, he died and made us white as snow. What a tremendous gift. He is the God-man who offered himself up for us all. The word there used for offered up is only used in Hebrews about 16 times and always refers to a priestly act. So as he offered up prayers and supplications, he's talking about prayers and supplications that have to do with his intercession for us as well as his offering himself up as the substitute, uh, substitutionary death for our sins. He prayed. He looked to God and he interceded with prayers. He interceded with supplications and he prayed offering himself unto God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14, which we'll come to some days from now, says this, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's a tremendous motivation to us to know that our God became man and gave his life for all of us. Not just a God who remains in heaven and the glories and beauties of all that's there and rules from there and makes demands of us and makes petitions and asks things of us, but one who came down and lived among us, lived our lives voluntarily and then went back to heaven having had that experience and now intercedes at the right hand of God the Father. Did you know that this morning and all through this past week and the weeks before that Jesus is praying for each one of you? I appreciated Bob's comments this morning and Bible Hour about John chapter 17. And I'd like you to turn there to John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. This is Christ's high priestly prayer. This is the prayer he prayed in Gethsemane as he prepared to take the punishment of the cross in order to accomplish our salvation. And it says there in John chapter 17, verse 14, speaking, Jesus speaking to his Father, I have given them thy word. And the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That's something to think about. We get pretty comfortable down here. We have comfortable homes, friends, comfortable lifestyle. But we need to keep reminding ourselves that this is not our home. 
this is not our home. We're going to be translated out of this place one of these days, either by the rapture or death, and we're going to go to another place that is going to be our home. You know, it's, it's difficult sometimes to keep that in mind. But that's not my point. Move on. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil one. You know, Jesus is praying for you. You know the first thing he's praying for? Look at that text. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil one. What's his prayer? That thou shalt keep them from the evil one. God wants to protect you from the wicked attacks of the devil in this world. Are you exposing yourself unnecessarily? Are you, are you taking chances playing around with things that give the devil a crack in the door to get into your life? Think about your Savior Jesus. He is praying. He is praying for you that God would keep you from the evil one. Are you cooperating with Jesus' prayers? Are you seeking to accomplish what his will clearly displayed here is? that we stay clear of the evil one who would seek to destroy our testimony and attack us. Notice what he says next. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Are you searching out the word of God for the truth that is there for you in what you do this coming week, in vocational decisions you make, in everyday family decisions you make and your relationships with people? Is it based on the truth of God's word? I, it's been one of my favorite phrases in all the scriptures. Uh, this phrase, thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. And then verse 18, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Now, that doesn't mean just to go on a tourist trip. That means to go into the world and share the good news of Jesus Christ's death for everyone in the world. Uh, the opportunity at Harrison Elementary School this Tuesday is, is a wonderful uh, fulfillment of that in that we're going into the world, uh, a section of the community that we would have virtually no other way of getting into, with some who are unchurched but very sympathetic to the cause of Christ, Others that may be saved and others that are there that don't even know who Jesus is. We are to go into the world. I, I just wonder, are we fulfilling Jesus' desire that we be a witness to the world? Three things Jesus is praying for us. To keep us from the evil one. To search the truth of God's word and to fulfill Jesus' desire that we be a witness to the world. Could we just pause for a moment and just ask the Lord to make us conscious of his clear will for us in this prayer and that we might be cooperating and seeking his face and seeing these things accomplished in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to have revealed to us in John chapter 17 this very personal and private prayer between you and your Father. We pray, Lord, as we see you expressed on our behalf in that prayer, these desires, that we would pursue them with the might with which you prayed them, that we would pursue them with the determination and the willingness to make the sacrifice that's necessary 
as you did there in the garden when you prayed these things for us, being full aware that you were about to pay the price for what would make these things possible in our lives. Lord, help us to guard ourselves from the evil one, to put on the whole armor of God. Help us to search the word and understand its truth. And help us to be excited about the truths that we find there and carry them to the world. Oh, Lord, convict us concerning the prayer of our intercessor who sits at the right hand of the Father right now praying these things for us. We pray in his name. Amen. But Jesus is superior in his humanity also because he experienced the full blow of man's sin. That is the phrase, if you look in your Bibles, in uh, the text we're in here in chapter 5, in verse um, I guess it's over in chapter 5, verse 7. Verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7. He, he prayed with strong crying and tears. Strong crying and tears. You know, it's only three times in the Bible that we read about Jesus crying. Can any of you think of what those three times are? Who oh, give me one? Yes. Yes. Loudly. Okay, when he was going to die in Gethsemane, that was one time. Hannah. Look. At the death of Lazarus, okay, that was the second time. And when was the third time? When he looked upon Jerusalem. When he looked upon Jerusalem as he entered into the city. Three times he cried. John chapter 11, verses 32 to 36 tell of the time when he was at Lazarus' tomb. Probably uh, that's the first in the order of the three very close to the time of his death and crucifixion. You know, it's interesting. Everybody wants to say what he was thinking about when he cried. <laughs> You'll notice that it says in verse 36, then said the Jews, behold, how he loved him. He cried because he loved Lazarus and he was dead. That doesn't hardly seem to be right, especially when you look a little bit earlier. And it says here, when Jesus therefore saw her, that's Mary, weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. You know, the thing that grieved him was that those he had come to minister to and revive did not believe him when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what grieved him. The lack of belief on the part of those that he had come to minister to. He wept over Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stone them that were sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered the children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wing, and ye would not. His own people, his own nation rejected him. What a, what a disheartening thing to come to be a tremendous blessing to usher in a new era and instead to be rejected. 
The third one is very, very interesting. He wept in Gethsemane's garden. Because his weeping in Gethsemane's garden isn't recorded in any of the Gospels. It's only recorded here in the book of Hebrews. So we have this account by virtue of someone who was paying attention in the Garden of Gethsemane, perhaps the three or one or two of the three that Jesus had taken with him off apart as he went in prayer to his father. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears on him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. He offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying. Strong crying. This crying here, the word that is used for this, is, a, is kind of an uncontrollable crying out. Uh, some weeks ago, I had to go to a dentist. You know, that's always an enjoyable recreational activity for some part of your day. Uh, they're getting pretty good, though. Their needles are sharp, so they don't hurt too much, and they numb it pretty good, so you really don't feel a whole lot. You can almost fall asleep in the chair sometimes, and I have. But he worked on me for about an hour, and I laid in that chair, and I was comfortable, and I thought everything was fine. But when I got out of the chair, I had a splitting, splitting pain in my side and could hardly get home. It was so bad, it, would, it wouldn't, wasn't constant. It would come and go. It was a cramp of some kind, I think. And when that would hit me, I would just, oh, I would cry out involuntarily because of the severity. That's what this picture is here, crying out involuntarily just with the pressure that was bearing down on him. The rabbis had a saying that there are three kinds of prayer, each loftier than the preceding. There's prayer, there's crying, and then there's tears. And tears overcome all things. As they would say, there's no door through which tears do not pass. The God-man was no stoic, unmoved by the fearful experiences through which he passed. No he suffered acutely, not only in body, but in his soul, too. These crying and tears were evoked not by what he received at the hands of man, but what imputed guilt had been brought down upon him from the hand of God. He was overwhelmed by the pressure of horror and anguish caused by the divine anger against our sin. He voluntarily entered the place into which sin had brought us, one of misery and wretchedness. But Jesus was superior in that he sacrificed himself for our behalf. He was one who, who never gave up, but he is one who died on our behalf. No heart hath or can conceive the terribleness of that conflict through which our blessed substitute passed. The men sang this morning about making us white as snow. Uh, that song has a presumption in it. The white as snow, it has to do with new fallen snow. Have you ever looked at the snow uh, during the springtime when it's melting and that white layers off the top, and as it melts deeper and deeper, it's closer to the ground, the dirt and the gravel, and all the stuff that's in it begins to show up, and it looks very, very ugly. 
very, very ugly. That's the way we looked. Have you ever tried to take and get some clean snow out of that gravel, dirt-filled snow? You can't do it without melting the snow and destroying it. That's what could have happened to us if God would purge us through the fires of hell. But no, he came down and purged us of our sin and made us white as new fallen fresh snow. Do you really understand? Do we really understand how serious our sin is against God? Do we really comprehend how much our sin grieves God? Have you stopped to think what Christ went through to pay the penalty for our sin, for your sin? Have you thanked him lately for bearing your sin? I'd like you to take your hymnals and turn to number 133. Lincoln's going to come and we're going to sing a couple of verses of wounded for me. As we meditate, and perhaps you'll choose to pray during this time, to thank God, the Lord Jesus, for what he did for us. 'll continue in chapter 5 verse 7 it says he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared you know I hope as you read God's word that you think about things here from him who was able to save him from death from what death? From the physical torture and dying on the cross? For the spiritual death as the Father turned his back on him? Well, God would answer those prayers, and he could have prayed that, because it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, Thinkest thou, Jesus said, that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. 
His father could save him from that physical death. His father could deliver him from his spiritual death. But he didn't pray that prayer. It was only a potential that he opted out of because he had his face set on going through the whole procedure of redeeming us and saving us from an eternal hell. It's interesting, though, because when you read this verse a little closer, able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Whatever he prayed there about able to save him from death says God heard it. God heard it. He evidently answered it. What might it be? Well, it's interesting for your Greek students here that the word that is used there in the preposition is the word ek, which means out of, out of death, out of being here the state of death. His prayer was one that God would save him from the grave, the, the state of death, of being in the state of death, as opposed to rising again as he did. Why would he pray that to the Father? Well, the reason he prayed it to the Father is because all three persons of the Godhead had a vital part to play in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Jesus said, he said, No man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. All three persons then had a part in his resurrection. Of course, for Jesus, the Son, the verse that we just read, he said, I have power to take it again. I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up again. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, it speaks of God, and it says, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father had a part in bringing him from the dead. And then the Holy Spirit in another text, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The three persons of the Godhead all interacted with one another. They were all dependent on they were all dependent upon one another, and they were all independent of one another. And as Jesus was about to pay the supreme price for our sins, he prayed, he prayed to be delivered from death, and he was heard. Why was he heard? Well, he was heard because he feared. But I ask you this question. Do you have a consciousness, an appreciation of the power that is available through prayer? Jesus prayed to be delivered from the grave, and all three persons of the Godhead joined together to make that happen. He has power over death. He is the creator who created all things out of nothing with the breath of his mouth. He is the source of life. And even Christ besought God the Father in his time of need. What a privilege we have in prayer to have access to our God who has such power. He is able to deliver you from anything you may be led into. He is there to help 
and to bring you through it. Take your hymn books and turn to number 523, and let's sing a couple of verses of this wonderful song, He is Able to Deliver You. Chapter 5, verse 7 says, And was heard. God answered his prayer in that he feared. What did he fear? What did he fear? Well, we might think he feared the torture of the crucifixion sequence. Certainly that would be something that would be fearful. He feared perhaps bearing the sins of all mankind. He could have feared perhaps the turning away of the Father from him. But none of those things seem to fit when we look at the text and it says, able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. He was heard because he had a reverential, a reverential trust of God. Jesus learned from all the experience of life through which he passed because he met them with all reverence. We can only hear that voice of God when we accept what comes to us in reverence. If we accept it with resentment, then the rebellious cries of our heart make us deaf to the voice of God. I want you to think back for a moment into the last time or perhaps some time, maybe not the last exact time, but sometime you've had just tremendous stress, tremendous trauma, tremendous challenge in your Christian life, in your, in your life in general. How did you handle that, that stress, that, that challenge? In your greatest time of need, when it seems your soul has reached its breaking point, do you ignore God? Blame God? Rebel against God? Or do you look to God and trust him for the outcome? He was heard in that he feared. 
I, I think it's a, a wonderful, amazing thing that in the relationships between the persons of the Godhead, we have an example that we should follow in our relationship with God. God the Son, who subordinated himself to the Father in function, but not in equality, in order to carry out the plan of salvation for us, he prayed to his Father with fear, an awesome respect that he had for his Father as the, one of the other persons of the Godhead. We, don't, we, th we think of them as equals, and they are equals, but we don't think of how they interact with one. He, he had genuine worshipful feeling toward his father. And in that sense, he was a model to us of the kind of attitudes we should have. Look at this verse again. Chapter 5, verse 7. seven Able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Now look at verse 8. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He feared, and his reaction was he obeyed. I thought, that's interesting. That sounds like a song I've heard. What is the song that talks about him fearing and then obeying? Huh? Come on. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. We've got to sing it. Turn to number 144. Stand with Lincoln as you sing, trust and obey. That's what he did. It says that he feared and then he obeyed. 414, trust and obey. Take your outline and look back to the first page. We said that there are five qualifications for the high priest. Number one, he must be from the human race and be a man who serves other men. We're through that point, believe it or not. And we came with three observations. Jesus is superior in his humanity and manhood 
by what he had given up and what he had taken on. He gave up the glories of heaven and took on the redemption of men and from all their sin. He is superior in his humanity by being an intercessor who was a God-man who intercedes in heaven for us just now. And he was superior in his humanity and manhood by experiencing the full blow of man's sin. Now we look to number two, which you turn your outline again in the second or third page here. You should find in number two, he must be ordained. Still in verse one, it says in Hebrews 5, 1a, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. Now we consider the part every high priest taken from among men, but I want you to notice the statement here is ordained, is ordained. The high priest must be ordained. The word ordained means to assign to someone a position of authority over others. And the high priest had that position. He essentially run the priestly temple end of the theocracy of Israel. We had the king who was the regal administrator. We have the priest who is the religious administrator. And we have the prophet who's kind of the one that keeps the other two honest. <laughs> and confronts them when they turn away. But he had to be ordained. A priest is appointed on man's behalf to deal with the things concerning God. If you've ever been to a pastor's ordination, you know that uh, when they finally come down after everybody's made their speeches and they sang all their songs and all these different things, uh, a group of men come up and lay their hands on the pastor, the candidate, the ones being ordained. And they are men who are have been in the ministry for many, many years and many times, who, who have been given authority as pastors. And they lay their hands on this young man and they vesture on him to continue the work of the ministry. They, they uh, commission him. They ordain him that he might be a leader in carrying on the work of the ministry. But Jesus is superior in his ordination. Jesus is superior in his ordination because his ordination glorified him glorified him as the divine high priest. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Look there. But no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he, the Father, that said unto him, Thou art my son, Today have I begotten thee. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Aaron was set apart by God to be the high priest of the nation of Israel. And, of course, he was challenged in that position. Some thought he took too much authority. And Korah and Dathan and Abiram arrogantly challenged Aaron's divine appointment as high priest. Numbers 16, verses 1 to 3. But God confirmed Aaron's call by making the ground open and swallow Korah and his associates while causing Aaron's rod to miraculously bud. Aaron was called of God. Hebrew believers were questioning the authority of Christ to be high priest because all priests had to come from the line of, of Aaron. And Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And God has a lesson here that he's about to try to teach us, and we're going to see that develop 
as we go on in the book. But he was ordained by God. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made in high priest, but he, the Father, said unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Men had, had honored, if you look at the text here, it says that, and no man taketh this honor unto himself. But in the next verse it says, so also Christ glorified not himself. So it's referred to when men are involved as an honor. It's referred to as being glorified when, the, when Christ is involved. And so uh, men are honored, but Christ was glorified. That's where we get the idea that Jesus is superior in his ordination because his ordination glorified him as the divine high priest. He was God. He wasn't just any high priest. Men were honored, but Christ was glorified. Honor was respect and status, but glorified meant to attribute to a high rank. God the Father preempted the system with his declaration in Psalm 2-7, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. What does it mean this day have I begotten thee? There's little phrases like that all through the scriptures that have always challenged me, uh, some of which I stop to figure out and others I don't. The thing that's most irritating, though, is that sometimes you stop and figure something out, and by the next time you get to it, you forgot what you decided, and you've got to go back and figure it out again. That's, maybe that's just getting old. I don't know. Is that getting old, Ray, or is it something else? <laughs> well, this is a curious phrase. You know what he's talking about here? What does it mean, this day have I begotten thee? You know, if you take it out of its context of the Bible and just read it for what it says, if you look up the word begotten in a lexicon, you'll find it means to give birth. And so it sounds here like God is bringing into existence his son on this day. This day have I begotten thee, have I birthed thee. But that's not what it's saying at all. It's using it in a figurative sense. And when we compare scripture with scripture, we find out what God is trying to say here. And we find the answer in Acts chapter 13, verse 33. It says there, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, he hath raised up Jesus again, as it also is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. What day? In the context of Acts chapter 13, I just read, what day is he referring to? Resurrection day. The resurrection day. On the resurrection day, he declared him, he said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The, the phrase refers directly to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you think about that for a moment, this is what it's saying. It's saying that when Jesus rose from the dead, all that had been prophetic in history became reality. And the Savior who had been promised and the King who had been promised and the priest who had been promised, on that day when he was resurrected from the dead, all that culminated in that hour that was such an important time. Do you know, in order to believe the gospel and be saved, you have to believe that Jesus was killed, that he was buried, and that he rose the third day. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrection of Christ is a key issue in our salvation. It was a significant day in God's plan. It was a culmination of centuries of God's typology and working with his people to teach them of his purposes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was uniquely appointed and declared at his resurrection the positional right to rule 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Turn back there. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, chapter 1, verse 5 of Hebrews, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This day have I begotten thee. It spoke of his power there. It speaks of his priesthood here. He is uniquely appointed and declared at his resurrection the positional right to rule as the son. Remember, at the time of the Great Commission, God says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth, Jesus said as he spoke before his ascension. Appointed the right to rule as a son and now to be high priest as the son. The same was never and could never be said of Aaron, who was only a human high priest. Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior in that his ordination glorified him as the divine, that means God, high priest. A divine has kind of lost its meaning over the years, but divine means one who is God. Something has to do with God. So he was glorified and became divine, the divine high priest. Jesus is superior in his ordination because his ordination establishes him both priest and king. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. As he says also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that other place is Psalm 110, verse 4, where it says, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And when we look at Genesis chapter 14, 18, we find a little bit about Melchizedek, which we'll learn a lot more later. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, he was a king. Salem was Jerusalem, another name for Jerusalem in those days before it was taken over and established as Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. He was king and priest. And this was not typical because the king and priest were always kept as separate, just like our government is divided into three different groups that are kept separate. We wonder how that's all working out these days. But the priest and king position were always kept separate. No king ever offered sacrifice to God, but that there wasn't some severe trouble. You remember Saul, who couldn't wait on the prophet to get there and offered up sacrifice, and God stripped him of his rulership. And Uzziah, who got leprosy, going into the temple intending to offer up sacrifices. There appears in the Old Testament only one character who is both king and priest, and that is Melchizedek king of Salem. His priesthood was endorsed no less by a person named Abraham, who was highly respected by the Jewish people. Well, there's more to come on that in chapter 7. Thirdly, Jesus is superior in his ordination because his ordination is eternal. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, that same verse, as he saith also in another place, thou art priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you go back to Psalm 110, verse 4, which is where that was quoted from, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed by the Romans, and the Aaronic priesthood ended. The Melchizedek priesthood, uh, the the, uh, the uh, 
Melchizedek priesthood will never end. It is an eternal, is an eternal priesthood. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, Jesus is superior in his humanity and manhood. Jesus is superior in his ordination. That's important to us because that's where our security comes from. Uh, everybody in the country is talking about security these days. We're talking about security at our borders. We're talking about security by putting fences up around their homes. They have private communities that you can't just go in and out of freely. We have alarm systems in our home that uh, let us know if somebody is in there that isn't supposed to be there. Always thinking about security. But I'll tell you the most important security. The most important security is your eternal security. And your eternal security was not guaranteed under the human priesthood of the Old Testament. It is guaranteed under the high priest Christ who was ordained after the order of Melchizedek forever. His ordination is eternal. What does that mean? Well, Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4 tell us about the eternal state. And it says this, And there shall be no more curse. That's, that's something to think about a long time. That has very far-reaching implications, that statement. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And that is guaranteed to you as a believer in Christ forever. Because Christ, of the order of Melchizedek, is the priest, the high priest in heaven forever. Could we just stop and, and offer a prayer of praise to God for the security that we have in him? We may be insecure on this earth and not know what another day bring in terms of our security, but we know we're secure eternally in Christ. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this security we have because Jesus came down and partook of humankind and paid the price and became our high priest in heaven forever. And so, Lord, as we look to you and we look to the future, we know there are uncertainties in this life. Things overpitch, despite our care or attention, we may not have control. But we know, Lord, that you hold us in your hand. And no man can take us out of your hand. We will spend eternity with you. Number three, he must offer up both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is one who offered himself as a sacrifice for men. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Let me just make a couple of comments here, and then we'll bring the message to a conclusion. There's another Greek lesson here. Here, Though he were a son, that means there's no article there. It doesn't say when he was the son. In fact, it doesn't say when he was a son. There's no definite article there. So it's a matter of interpretation. And in the language, when the article's missing like that, it would read like this, and he was son. Now, you say, that didn't sound like good English, and he was son. Well, if you think about it a minute, that emphasizes the quality of who he was. 
And that's the emphasis here. Though he were a son, though he were son, which is another way of saying, though he were God, though he were God, though he were God, he offered up himself, yet learned he by obedience the things which he suffered. And being made perfect or complete for the purpose for which he was brought, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Well, we're going to skip to the end here. There's some other points there that you can look at. But I'd like to just leave you with these thoughts. Jesus, Jesus was superior both in the earthly qualifications and in his heavenly qualifications to the earthly high priest of the Old Testament. Jesus is superior in his humanity and manhood. Jesus is superior in his ordination. Jesus' offering of gifts and sacrifices is infinitely more valuable than those of the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus is compassionate in a superior way. Jesus was called in a superior way. He was trying to communicate to Jews once again that the high priest we have in heaven is far above the high priest that Israel had known in history. He was just a shadow. He was just a a representative picture. And he could never fully represent what all God would be as our high priest. We, We have a lot of fun exchanging pictures and videos and so forth among our family and our little West Coast Circuit uh, texting group. And one of the cutest little videos that came, came a few weeks ago. And little Nora, who's with Lawrence, his little girl, in Washington, D.C., was playing in their front room. And they have a, a big windowed wall in the front room that the sun comes in. It's a very bright wall. And the light that was coming in from the outside was cast upon little Nora, and, and her shadow appeared on the wall. And she turned and noticed that shadow, and she walked up to the shadow, and ever so tenderly and gently, she kissed her shadow. But it was just a shadow, just an outline. That's all. My wife's mom has... In their bedroom, uh, they don't do this much anymore. Uh, a silhouette framed of her children. I don't know if she's got one of Rebecca. How, what others does she have? She have your other, other sibling? I'm not sure she has or not. I think there's one of Rebecca there, as I recall. No, not you. Who's there, Debbie? That gal way in the back there. She's in there. Well, it's an outline, and you know for sure who it is. But it doesn't really tell you a whole lot. It doesn't tell you how much fun you can have listening to her jokes. It just shows the silhouette there. And that's the way the Old Testament priest was. He was just a partial representation of the real high priest, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the superior high priest. And as we close, I bring your attention back to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. It says there, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Those Jews, you Jews who are looking back to the old system, hey, remember your profession. Remember who it is that is now your high priest. 
He's far greater than the temple system with all its earthly glory, which is here physically, and he is gone and not, and not visible. But nevertheless, he is far greater than any of the earthly sins. Let's hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And then it concludes, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As a close of service, I'd like to... I ran across a little slogan that kind of pricked my analytical thinking mind. It goes something like that. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. And I know only this moment is mine. Now, that's written by some would-be philosopher. And it's not really completely true. Yesterday is history. The idea that of, this, of the song of sin is that you can't do anything about the past. The past is gone. Forget it. You can't do it. That's not really true. You know what you can do about the past? You can take those things where you failed God and you can ask him to forgive you. You can repent about the past. You can go back and make restitution to people about the past. And you can actually turn past events which are over into something very meaningful by how you handle those past events. You give glory to God for those past events. So, in a sense, it's not like it's of no value, but but yes, nonetheless, there's a limitation to what you can do about what happened in your life yesterday. Yesterday, in, in a sense, is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a lot of mysteries about the future, but this thing is sure you're going to be in heaven with Jesus Christ. It's not a total mystery. It's not a total mystery. We know where we're going, and we know how we're going to get there. And so there are certain things, though, that about the coming world is a mystery. If you, my cousin's class, uh, they ask good questions sometimes, and sometimes they ask questions. They seem to be able to zero in quite quickly on the things that are still a mystery, (laughs) and I don't really have an answer for. There are a lot of things in the future that are a mystery, but yet... But yet, we do know what God's plan for us in the future is when we make him our Savior. And by the way, if you don't make him your Savior, you can also know what his plan is. He's made it very clear that you will have to pay for your own sins. So yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. In a certain sense, it is. And I know only this. This moment is mine. This moment right now. This moment. It's not history. It's not future. It's right here, right now. You can do something significant right now. You have control of this moment. In a little bit, it'll be gone. And we'll be downstairs eating and other things, and events of the day will come along. But right now, this moment, you can do something significant that God wants you to do. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? As we've gone through these texts, we've had many, many, many different occasions here we talk about applications of various aspects of the text. We talked about fathers being high priests to their children before their children are old enough to get to know God, how they know God by virtue of how their mother and father, especially their father, 
act. We talked about how much Christ gave up and we're challenged about how much we are willing to give up and how much willing, how willing we are to take on something beyond our comfort zone like Jesus did. We uh, may not be recognizing how serious sin is and be dabbling right around the corner from sin or in the midst of a crowd of sin. Compassion, we've talked about compassion. We didn't get to that section, but in compassion, in the mind of the Greek, it was a balance between two extremes, a balance in our feeling towards people, a sympathy that was real, but that was life-changing in the way it was expressed to those around us. We talked about security and how our security is in Christ. We talked about repenting. We talked about confessing sin. I ask you in these moments of meditation as we close to remember this moment is yours. God surely has spoken to some of you about some of these things in your life. And you need to make a decision. We get into preaching and away from teaching when we don't just give you information, but we say, hey, this information demands from you a decision. And that's the case today. It demands you to make a decision about whether you're going to trust Christ if you've not already done so. It demands you to make a decision about all these different matters that we've mentioned. And you're all different, and they may be different for each one of you. But calls us, God calls us to make decisions that commit us to his way. Maybe, this, uh, maybe, a, maybe a decision to recognize and treat the Bible as the truth it really is. Whatever it is. Would you stand with me just now? And would you go with me to the throne of grace where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, if you would stand, please? As we pray and ask him to impress upon each one of us what he would do in our lives today, each life. Father in heaven, thank you for all these different instructions we've received as we've gone through these texts that have to do with the high priesthood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God the Son, the God-man at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Lord, may his intercession not be in vain, but as he prays for us this moment, this moment while his word has been declared, his spirit is here, Lord, may he speak to each one. May each one search out their heart and see what it is God wants for them in regard to these things we've learned from your word. Lord, bring us forth. Help us to humble ourselves and to turn to you. In Jesus' name.